Hi, hi, hello guys. I'm Rui, and this is Macabre Ramblings, a true crime fall ramble. So it's another week, and it's another true crime case, and this time we're gonna go to Australia. Actually, <laughs> this case, this episode, I was actually half thinking of skipping this week for the exact reason that I could not find the right amount of information that I feel like it's going to be a fulfilling episode that even if I trim it down to a mini, it doesn't feel like I have enough. I don't know. It doesn't feel like it's up to the amount of information that I want to give in an episode. So I was like, ah, the amount of time I spent researching is you know it's not i had a lot i did a lot of research i feel like but the amount of information is just like over and over and over again it's the same so it doesn't feel like i have enough and then and then and then i found a documentary in youtube it's an episode that actually i tried to watch it in the uh, official website but I could not access it because I'm not living in Australia but then there's someone who uploaded it in YouTube. I have the link in the references in the podcast, the notes, the about the episode type of place for the podcast. I have put it there. I have resorted to putting it in numbers and I think it's the seventh reference so if you want to watch it you could just find it there. So I found that documentary and it gave me the information that I want. So I'm like, oh fuck yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna skip a week and I have enough. And yeah, so that's how I got to like saving this episode, I suppose. And the topic for this episode is the murder of Florence Broadhurst in Australia. So I picked this because Florence by herself is a very interesting character and her death is quite sudden. It was sudden. Actually while I was researching, I found so much about Florence herself but her death, it doesn't feel like I got enough. That's where I felt the shortage of information in, in the crime part. And it would be good if I am a podcast dedicated to biographies of interesting people, but I'm not. This is a true crime podcast, and having such a small amount of information for the crime itself, it doesn't feel like it's good. I don't know. It doesn't feel like it's up to par as to what I want, but then the documentary, it has a lot of information or enough i suppose actually in that documentary the uh, host or the person there that gave the interviews to the people said that this is actually the first time that the details of the crime and some of the people that were interviewed is the first time that they have been showed in public so i suppose that's the reason why i can't get like enough information in just articles alone so yeah i have rambled for so long now so i'm just going to start with florence broadhurst of course it's her childhood at first who she is so broadhurst was born in mount perry queensland at mungi station m-u-n-g-y mungi mungi manji either way there on <laughs> july 28 1899 
apparently this is a place that is a few kilometers away from Sydney but it's a place where there are cattle or farms and as I was searching where Mount Perry is or what it is in Wikipedia it says that this is just a small town in the North Burnett region in southeastern Queensland Australia and in the 2016 census so it's not up to up to date but it's relatively updated Mount Perry had only a population of 538 people so it's just a small town it's like the people there uh, in the interview in the documentary Helen O'Neill it she's an author of Florence Broadhurst biography her life she said that at that time the people living there or Florence her family at the very least they are not well-to-do they don't have much they're just they just have like a cattle farm they work in that so Florence is the fourth in the article that I have read it said fourth surviving child so I'm like is she really the fourth child or did someone you know die but in the article, it said, fourth surviving child of William Broadhurst. He's a stockman, later a grazier and hotelier, and his wife, Margaret Ann Crawford. So as I've said, they weren't well-to-do at all. But from Pat Smith, who runs the History Center in Mount Perry, she was a close friend of Florence's sister, Priscilla, and she knew the family well. She said that despite, you know, the rural place where the Broadhursts live, they were not what she would call the stereotypical country bumpkin of that place. So she said to the Sun Herald, quote, she was not the hick that she has been made out to be. She might have been born in the country, but her family were like gentry. Florence and her sisters were very well educated. They spoke with a plum in their mouth. Florence sang very well. Priscilla played the piano. They played tennis, and they were very tasteful young ladies. Very into fashion. Always right up there. End quote. So, they were educated. They were talented in music. And because Florence has this very beautiful voice, apparently she is a contralto, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a pretty rare uh, voice type. I forgot the term for that, but contralto, that's... Ooh. So because she has this very gorgeous contralto voice, she became a singer and she attend, uh, She participated in the local Eisted Fods. Apparently, Eisted Fods is traditional in welsh but then australian culture adopted it and this is a term more commonly used to describe ballet and music competitions for those eisted fods that are most like the welsh original they involve testing individuals in singing dancing acting and musicianship so florence participated she competed and she won in her local eisted fods and she, after that, she joined a group named Smart Set Diggers. So on December 4, 1922, she left Australia to perform with another group, a musical comedy sextet, the Globetrotters, and they toured in Southeast Asia and China. And she was in that group under the stage name Miss Bobby. Uh, she also performed with the broadcasters, Carlton Follies and Carlton Sparklers. I don't know, but I suppose those are groups, musician groups. And she received favorable reviews for her singing and her Charleston dancing. And she was even photographed for the English language newspapers, including the Eastern Mail in Delhi and the South China Morning Post. So in 1926, since I suppose she was touring China and she felt like this is a good place for a business, it's a business opportunity for her. So in 1926, she established the Broadhurst Academy in Shanghai. And this is a finishing school. And as I have known, finishing school is for, you know, the wealthy people. 
kind of like the aristocrats or just the high society women where they like finish their education i suppose so the broadhurst academy in shanghai is like that and they offer tuition in violin pianoforte voice production banjolele and i searched that up because i'm like banjolele so i'm like is that a banjo and a ukulele combined and turns out i was right <laughs> it was a it was a banjo ukulele also known as the banjolele or banjo uke and this is a four-stringed musical instrument with a small banjo type body and a fretted ukulele neck so that is a banjo lele and there's they also provide classes in modern ballroom dancing classical dancing musical culture and journalism unfortunately this business did not last i don't know why but i suppose she did not get the profits that she wanted from this business so she decided to return to queensland in 1927 but then she sustained head injuries in a car accident and i don't know if this uh had an effect in her psyche you know uh traumatic brain injury but it was not it was not explained further just saying that she got in art car accident at that time and she sustained some head injuries so after that two years later she then went to england and in 1929 married percy walter gladstone can and he is an english stockbroker so with her husband they made a uh, business named pelier robes and modes and they co-directed this business and she called herself madame pelier so i'm like who is madame pelier because her husband is percy walter gladstone can there's no pelier there but apparently she took on a character she took on something like and she kind of like reincarnated in a way she took on this character saying that she's french which she is not she's australian and saying that she's french she uh, released these advertisements claiming that she will dress everybody because this pelier thing is i think this is a place where they they uh sell dresses especially for those that are debutantes the famous and she kind of did have the those kinds of customers so this business she is a designer and dress consultant and it is in new bond street mayfair so this business continued for a while but then her and her husband divorced and after this divorce i suppose this business did not go well because they co-directed this business she then became involved with another man named leonard lloyd lewis and he was he is a diesel engineer and he is living in banstead from 1939 so married now with him in 1945 they moved they moved to worthing sussex and this is where florence obtained fishing and passenger boat licenses she also became the honorary secretary eh, how do you say that honorary secretary of the art women's movement against socialization i don't know what that is but sounds important so in 1949 the couple they have a son named robert they moved to australia but then when they moved back to australia you'd think that oh this is my hometown i'm not gonna act like i'm french anymore and she did not she didn't she did not act that she's french but she claimed she was british so it's kind of like a change of character once again so she claimed to be an english aristocrat so not just in an english not just british but she is an aristocrat and she did dress like an aristocrat i found like i saw pictures in the documentary of florence and she definitely looked like an aristocrat and because she's in her country her 
her home country, her family is there. And going back to Pat Smith, which is Florence's sister's friend, she said that Florence's family, which they still remain in Mount Berry, Mount Perry, I mean, they were devastated because of this. Because she publicly proclaimed that she is an English aristocrat. So they were very hurt because essentially Florence was denying her family in Australia. And they were angry that she essentially thought that she was too good for them and for the rural place of Mount Perry. So going with the lie that she is an aristocrat she told people that she knows winston churchill and that she is friends with the royals because she is from the high society in england and that back in england she has this very wonderful life but she had to move to australia because i suppose it's a time for world war one and there's this bad effects of the war in England, so she moved to Australia to uh, recover from the bad effects, effect, effects of the war. But then World War II happened and she joined the Australian Women's Voluntary Services offering hospitality to Australian soldiers. So while in Australia, she took up painting as a hobby. She actually went around northern and central Australia. Reportedly, she produced around 114 works in her two years just traveling, which were first shown as Paintings of Australia in 1954 at a gallery named David Jones Art Gallery in Sydney. Then later, she also uh, showed her creations in Brisbane and Canberra. So I take it that she is good at art. You know, if she has, she manages to show her pieces in galleries like that. So continuing her, you know, being in the art society, she was a foundation member of the Art Gallery Society of New South Wales. And she is also a member of the Society of Interior Designers of Australia. And she was a teacher of printmaking and sculpture at the National Art School and she was also involved in a variety of charitable activities. So while this is happening, she is still a British aristocrat for everybody around her, except for the ones who really knows who she is. But she's really inserting herself into that art society. And she is good at it. She is is actually a very good socialite. She has this ability to say what people want to hear. She is very good at that. So in the 1950s, she is still married to Leonard. She became, as I suppose, as I said, (laughs) she became involved in charitable and fundraising activities. But by 1961, Leonard had moved to Queensland he left Florence and her son to run a motor sales business at St. Leonard's, Sydney. Why? Because he, her husband, left her for a woman younger than their own son. Oof. I'm like, okay, a younger woman. But then younger than your... Uh, okay? Okay. So now... She is single once again, but she continued her charity work. She continued desi- she even designed some decorations for the 1964 oh no, Die Opera House Ball and she acted as vice president and honorary organizer for the United Nations Association of Australia International Ball Committee in 1966. That's a mouthful. So in the 1970s, she was connected with the Royal Arts Society and the Sydney Opera House and the Australian Red Cross Society. So she's definitely up there. Oh my god, she's doing a lot. And uh uh-huh. So that's in the 1970s. Let's go back to 1959 for a bit because I'm going to talk about 
the business that made her famous internationally that made her the Florence Broadhurst. And in 1959, this is where she established the Australian hand-printed wallpapers. She hired a designer named Kate Dodger, who <laughs> in the documentary, she was uh, interviewed and she believed that she was that Florence is really a British person. So she's really, really keeping up with this facade. And she's really good at it as well. And I remember like in the documentary, the interviewer asked Kate, like, so Florence lied. And Kate Dodger said that, yeah, she lies. She lies a lot. She lies to everybody. <laughs> so that's who uh, Florence is in Kate's eyes. So hiring Kate, she is a designer and Florence is a designer herself. So they worked in a studio at 1224 Royalston Street, Paddington. So they had a small staff at, f at first, of course. So she designed, manufactured, and marketed locally produced, high-quality, handcrafted wallpapers in such luxurious, oversized patterns with these vivid combinations of colors. It's so colorful, it's so pretty. And it the designs are inspired by her traveling all over the world. And like, she went, for example, to Shanghai. So there are those um, more Asian kind of Asian looking kind of patterns and all of that. So these are like very brightly colored pieces. And the they also had these technical advances that they had made in their studio. And this included printing onto metallic surfaces. So the wallpaper looks like metallic. So if you want like gold metallic like designs, you can do it. So this is also the development of a washable like vinyl coating finish. And they even had this drying rack system that allowed the wallpapers to be produced in large quantities. And this is like the start of her business growing and growing. And if they eventually moved to Paddington in July 1969. And she changed the company's name and it is now known known as Florence Broadhurst Wallpapers. And the advertisement for this is that the only, is, quote, the only studio of its kind in the world, end quote. And they ended up exporting wallpapers to North America, England, Hawaii, Kuwait, Peru, Norway, and Paris. So in 1972, the Australian News and Information Bureau issued this press release claiming that the uh, Florence's designs had this international reputation. And by then, her wallpapers had reportedly have around 800 designs in 80 different coloring ways. So that's a lot. So because she is successful, she ended up being a very prolific socialized socialite. And she is famous for her own very kind of technicolor personality. She's very bold. And uh, apparently she is the type that dresses very, not provocative, but you know when you're around 70s, you're around 60s, there are a lot of adults at that age that dresses in a think, it, it dresses in what they think is the appropriate clothes for their age. And uh, Florence does not do that. She dresses in a way where she just wants to dress, you know. If she wants to dress in a way that it's a one-piece dress that looks like it's a kind of dress that the 20s people would love to wear more she would wear it she doesn't care and she likes the bold bold colors like bold yellow and all of that and even her hair i don't know if it's uh her natural hair color but when she was around 70s 60s at the time of the crime her hair was like bright red it's like bright ginger ish red it's not like completely red it's like 
very very bright so if she's in a crowd and you see that hair you know it's her so she's very known for that kind of personality she loves like putting flamboyant clothes her jewelry is a lot she loves the antique jewelry and she loves this very coiffed hair so in 1973, her eyesight is starting to fail because she is around 70s now and her hearing is also starting to fail so she flew to Britain for a bit to attend this self-therapy clinic in the hope of improving her health and just rejuvenating her body. And knowing that, you know, her eyesight is failing Suddenly, there's a lot of doubts when it comes to her designs because uh, did she actually create these designs? Because it's known that she has poor eyesight. Her son, Robert, attests to this, that she has poor eyesight. Her eyesight was so bad, she could not even read a menu in a restaurant. So, you know, thinking if her eyesight is that bad, how can she make this vivid patterns sometimes it's uh kind of complicated there's a lot of eccentricity there's a lot of like peculiar patterns like how can she do this subtle finicky vivid patterns that are her trademark in her designs and even at that you know 70s age she still reveals more designs she still creates more so her designs is it really hers or is it not hers so there are doubts of that and in the documentary kate dodger as i've said she is a designer that has been with florence since the start and she said that when florence has this idea in her mind she is in this type of mood and she wants this mood to be in a design she would go to kate or some designers and they will and she would tell her about it kind of like asking for her to draw a design with florence's guidance and she does this with her graphic designers as well and they in fact were kind were responsible for the output in the workshop and looking back at her life her life is like different incarnations of her own like character she was florence broadhurst and suddenly she is miss bobby she is like this singer she dances and suddenly she is this person that does finishing school business and then she's suddenly french and then she's suddenly british an aristocrat so lying <laughs> it's not new in her life and so that's why the doubts are becoming like bigger and bigger for other people that knows how she lives and lived her life and though when helen o'neill the author of her biography was asked if she did kind of steal designs she went to her defense florence's defense and i have seen an article kind of like critiquing criticizing i mean helen o'neill's uh, approach when it comes to florence because if you see her talking about florence you see that she absolutely loves her character at the very least she finds florence so interesting so it's kind of like looking like a fangirl who is going to defend every single thing <laughs> that florence had done so helen defended florence in a way that she said that the designs are technically from her that she was the vision of these uh, designs and that's why she does not think that florence did steal these designs because she was guiding the designers when the design was ongoing and i personally don't know much about the uh world when it comes to that so i'm not gonna say anything but of course there are people that think that she did steal designs and some people that think that she's technically the one who you know made up the designs in her mind and she just approached her designers and like i kind of want this flamingo over there or i kind of want 
suns over there. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. Think what you want to think. So now, in 1977, October 15, just a day after my birthday. Of course, it's not 1977. <laughs> so, when in her factory in Paddington, Sydney, <laughs> this is kind of like funny because I was listening to the documentary as I keep saying I have gotten a lot of information in that and I am not that familiar with the Australian accent I mean I understand what they're saying but there are some ways they speak that I find it hard to understand so I have to rewind and then listen to it again and for the I don't know first 20 minutes of that documentary I thought that the name of the constable who is the first responder in the scene of the crime is named Tiny Russell I literally thought that his name is Tiny Russell I actually like paused and I'm like who names their son Tiny Tiny Russell. <laughs> so I even wrote in my notes at first, Tiny Russell. And then I realized I had this epiphany while watching the documentary that it's not Tiny, it's Tony. So his name is Tony Russell. So at the, uh, at the time of the crime, Tony is a 19 years old police constable and this is actually his very first day on the job man this guy like won the traumatic bingo <laughs> i guess you could say that so uh the morning of october 15 1977 he got a phone call from someone across the street of the factory expressing concern for the factory because they said that the front door of the factory has been open all night and the lights are on. And apparently when uh, Florence is there and she the business is open, she leaves the door of the factory open in case there's going to be clients coming to her and you know asking for the signs or asking for wallpapers. And at this point in time, her clients are people of high society she knows people of high society so high society people come to her so maybe they want to come to her to talk about this design for i don't know their daughter's room or their kitchen or their ballroom and all of that so she leaves her the factory door open when she thinks that uh, when the business is open but then the bit the factory door was open all night and so this sub person that I suppose is living across the street was concerned because the door was open the lights are on so they called the police so they gave Tony the address so Tony with a sergeant went to the address they met the one who called and then they decided to go in and take a look so from the documentary Tony said that he was feeling very anxious not because this is his like, this is his first day, but because you never really know what you're going to see inside. So you go inside and you don't know if you will just find like somebody who fell asleep, forgot to close the door. Or you're going to go in and you'll find a wreck. Or you're going to come in and you find a dead body just laid there on the floor. You don't know. Maybe you go in there and someone just shoots you because the criminal is still inside. So he was very anxious. So with the sergeant, the sergeant checked upstairs and the factory is the the place where they make the wallpapers or the warehouse of the wallpapers is in the first floor and upstairs is the office. You know, the kitchen annex, the bathroom, Florence's office. So the sergeant went up the stairs to check and Tony himself is left on the first floor. So he was looking inside. So it was, he calls it a wreck because of course it's a warehouse or a factory where they're making a lot of stuff. So there's a lot of products inside, there are wallpapers getting dried, there's like paint. So there's a lot of things there. So he was searching and searching and searching. And then he saw a door at the back and it was slightly ajar. So he peeked in and inside, there's a plastic bin 
you know that kind of bin where I don't know it it's that kind of white bin in the documentary I guess that's what they used to represent the bin but it's that white bin that you see when there's a construction happening <laughs> yeah it's that bin and inside that bin there's a piece of wood a piece of wood so he noticed that the bin and the piece of wood had this red substance around it around the rim and on the wood itself and he just took note of it for that moment he looked at the wood he actually picked it up but then he put it back in the bin and at that time he just thought that it's paint oh ho ho paint it's not paint so Thinking that it's paint, he just went upstairs to meet the sergeant that is looking around. And while they were looking around, they saw a handbag. They took note of that handbag. And then they took note of the carpet at the end of the hallway because it was weird. It was soggy, like there's water. And they were wondering, how is that soggy? There's no like faucets nearby. That, well, this is so weird. So they were looking around and they see nothing. There were no signs of a struggle, no signs of blood on the walls, nothing. So seeing no one there, he just kind of like said to his sergeant that he needs to go to the, to the bathroom and then they can go, you know, because they found nothing. So the sergeant did say that he hadn't looked at the bathroom quite yet so tony said that yeah it's fine i'll go check it then when i'm going to use it so at first he tried opening the door and he noticed that the door was stiff you know the doorknob was turning but the door wasn't opening so he tried to what does he did he call that football tackle you know he puts force into that door and it finally opens and there he finds her so Florence's head, it's in the toilet. You know when you shove, shove somebody's head into the toilet? So her head is in the toilet and her right arm is supporting her forehead somewhat. You know when you're trying to sleep on your desk and you use your arm to lay your head or your forehead on your arm? It's kind of like that, but it's you know in the toilet and her left arm is by her side it's just limp it's kind of like halfway on the floor so seeing this he turned white and pale and he started trying to rush out of the building so he could get some air and he did tell the sergeant that he should check the bathroom so apparently tony was so affected by the sight that he did not go home that night he just went to the pub and he had a drinking binge he drank for days just to try and forget this because he said that it's traumatic for him especially because when he thinks of it he it's so vivid in his mind that there's just florence's head on the toilet and it's like bright red ginger color so it's just it's just ingrained in his mind so man so then after that it's obvious that it this is homicide so detectives from paddington turned up and apparently uh, florence got 10 separate blows to the head mm -hmm. so her fingers were broken and i first thought that oh shit did it get you know slammed somewhere but apparently the fingers were broken because she has these expensive luxurious rings and they were stolen with so much force her rings were broken that's what they think had happened and looking in the office there were two empty cups of tea mm -hmm. and uh some people think that the carpet was soggy because this carpet is actually kind of like just almost it's quite near to the bathroom itself so they think that somebody shoved her head to the toilet bowl flushed it and that's why there's water and the carpet just seeped it all in inside the carpet and that's why it's soggy so yeah florence broadhurst she is 78 years old 
at the time of her death, and she was apparently last seen alive at her business, as I've said, on Royalston Street about 3.40pm on Saturday, 15 October 1977. So that's when they think the crime happened. On October 15, 1977, on Saturday that afternoon. So they think that the motive is money because in her purse, $8,000. My God, who puts $8,000 in cash? So she has $8,000 there in her bag, but it was gone. It was stolen from her handbag. And as I have said, the rings on her fingers. She has seven expensive rings and it was taken off. It was actually debated if she was sexually assaulted, but Tony did say that when he found her, she was completely dressed. So externally or just, you know, from one look, it doesn't look like she was. And apparently, there were no fingerprints in the crime scene. So her funeral, when it happened, it was attended by a lot of people in high society. Like, you see how many people people she definitely got in touch with high society so since there was there was a lot of people that went to her funeral detectives were there looking around you know what if the criminal was there attending the funeral so they were just watching and watching and then suddenly at one point the fraud investigation force joins the detectives so i'm like huh fraud investigation so apparently, it was speculated at this time that uh, Florence was a victim of a fraud that had lots of money involved. So this fraud case was a disappearance of money from trust accounts or trust funds of many wealthy people in Sydney's eastern suburb. And apparently, Florence was a victim of that as well. This uh, path of investigation was not explored that much or it was explored but the results weren't really released to the public so I don't know anything else aside from that. So Florence, after the funeral, she was cremated. So the murder, it was never solved. This is actually a very infamous murder case in Australia. No charges were ever laid and Uh, This is what makes me so frustrated with this case. The file, the murder file, went missing. So I'm like, where are you putting your murder files and why are they missing? So these files were missing and only three papers of undated documents were left. And this is just a short summary of the post-mortem examination so i don't know the autopsy there are no like evidence that i could give more than that so i suppose that's why i can't get so many information about this because the information itself is fucking missing (laughs) my god so the pictures of the crime scene the murder weapon all lost all lost and tony tony russell the first responder the first person that ever saw florence dead He was never questioned. Never questioned. So the investigation, it was pretty botched. Or just, it was not investigated properly at all. So apparently, Tony, he was not involved in the investigation itself. Saying that he was quote-unquote green. Because, you know, it was his first day at work. So I'm like, he doesn't have any experience. And he, he gets that. He was fine with that at first. Until he saw documents that is apparent to him that someone just added some bits and pieces, bits and pieces here and there. Someone saying that they have to sidestep the debris from the struggle. But he said that there's no evidence of a struggle, not at all. That he wouldn't have found Florence if he didn't if he didn't need to go to the bathroom. It's that clean. And somebody even said that. That her cardigan was in the toilet bowl and he said that no, her cardigan isn't in the toilet bowl. So there's bits and pieces that are just different from his account. So he felt very concerned when he saw those documents that are not what he thinks is the truth. 
So asking him, the investigator, the interviewer or investigator in the documentary, he asked Tony Russell, what do you think had happened? So he thinks that she was running away from her assailant and she ran to the toilet, you know, for her safe space. But then that's where she was bludgeoned by this wood and then she was grabbed and put her head on the toilet and the toilet was flushed and that's why the carpet outside was soggy and tony thinks that this isn't just a burglary i guess it's just a bonus an extra but some kind of personal hate because he thinks that this is like you know putting her head a very success look a very successful woman her head being put on the toilet it's kind of like degrading in a way you know like you're successful in society and i'm just gonna put your head in the toilet which humans associate as something dirty because that's where we pee that's where we poop you know that's we do we do not associate that place as something clean and then suddenly her head is there it was left there and when she was found her head is still there so now we go to her son so he thinks the theory from him is that he thinks that this is probably a crime a crime that an employee at the time or at least a past employee that they were the ones who did it because apparently florence as i've said has this way with words and she managed to entice people to work for her because she's that good with her words and apparently she had led some employees to believe that they were co-owners of this business uh-huh she has this capability to entice people by saying that they're going to be a shareholder you know you're gonna be a shareholder when you work with me so some employees think that oh i have like a share in this business i'm kind of like a co-owner for this business but then they realize while working for florence that this isn't true like what they believe a promise is made like this it's not true and so they become mad you know that's why leonard florence's son thinks that hey an employee or at least a past employee might have done this and also florence has this sharp tongue her personality is pretty 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 strict she's very that kind of boss that is very hard pressing when it comes to her employees and leonard himself had seen employees crying because of her and <laughs> leonard said that the crying and the tears is there but be- because florence does not choose when she is going to attack she is going to scold somebody she does not choose the place so when it it is in public she will do it in public she's gonna confront you in public so it's gonna be very humiliating and there's this way with words that she 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 has this way with words as well that she is good with her sweet talking but when it comes to you know talking and kind of like scolding humiliating she has that way with her words when it comes to that as well and leonard thinks that it's an employee because of the two cups of tea and one of the people that he knows that florence makes tea you know just two cups of tea between the two of them is her head printer david bond so david bond is actually one of the workers that had been working with florence from the very beginning apparently she got him off the street i take that as he really doesn't have a good life and she kind of like gave him or saved him from that bad life by uh getting him to work for her and he is kind of like a surrogate son for her and he is also one of the last people to have seen her alive because on the day that she died he and another co-worker were working a shift they were downstairs and she is upstairs 
Apparently, he and the co-worker had left the factory at about 4 p.m. And he was interviewed by the police. And it's either they were satisfied with his story or there were no follow-ups at all. Because that's pretty much all that I know about David Bond. So back to her son. Of course. Of course. He was suspected as well. You know, you're going to suspect people that are closest to the victim. And Robert Lloyd Lewis is basically the closest, you know, family blood-wise to Florence. And in her will, he is also the only beneficiary in her will. So he gained a lot from her death. And he himself said that the one who gained the most is him and her and his relationship with Florence is pretty pretty rocky and difficult because you know Florence is the type that is very focused on her career she wants to be successful and she was so focused in it that Robert was sent to a boarding school at five years old five Uh uh-huh and I'm like okay that is hard but apparently their house distance wise is just three miles away from the boarding school so he knows that his house is this close but he does not come home on long weekends and when it's holidays he will get sent to his grandfather so it's like where is my mother she's nowhere so what kind of relationship is there nothing so apparently it was until he was an adult that they actually developed this kind of uh good-ish relationship apparently this is when he had lost his first wife and he was you know drinking alcohol all the time he was depressed but at this time he also had kids and florence went to him and told him to hey man up you know you have kids and she doesn't plan to be a surrogate mother to her kids to his kids i mean and this like sounds harsh like oof what the heck but apparently this is florence's way of showing compassion like tough love in a way and leonard did man up and the relationship got better but it's more of a relationship between two adults that are accepting each other's roles in their life so i don't think that's you know a relationship between mother and son in a way that we know a relationship of mother and son you know the harmonious relationship is and the more damning uh evidence or side for when it comes to suspecting her son oh wait it's not leonard i keep calling him leonard no 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 Leonard is her husband. Her son is Robert. Ah, ah. <laughs> so, Robert. So, the ver- the more damning evidence, I suppose, when it comes to Robert being a suspect, is that at the uh, day before Florence died, Robert and Florence were having an argument. And this argument was heard by the employees. So, I guess... When the police did interview the employees, the employees would say that, ah, her son and her had an argument the day before. So it, you know, made the police look at Robert even more. But the argument, at least for me, it's not that damning because this is an argument between a concerned adult to an adult that is pretty much, you know, it's fine. You know, that kind of argument because Florence told Robert that she is having this problem when it comes to money because she thinks that money is slowly disappearing out of her bag. You know, that handbag that around, you know, $200, $150, $100 are just missing from her money there. So for Robert, this... He thinks this is obviously one of her staff just slowly stealing money out of her bag. And he said that he would go and get a safe and she would put her bag in that safe just to make sure that money isn't going to be stolen away from her bag. 
and she argues back that no she trusts her staff and this is you know too much this is kind of over an overreaction so that argument just is about that or at least that's what Rob, that's what robert says the argument is about so uh, as i've said the argument was the day before florence was killed and he did have an alibi and his alibi was that he was playing golf with three friends and then they went drinking at the clubhouse bar up to around 6 p.m and the alibi did check out so that's all about the theory that robert did it and this is the more famous theory that when you search her case this theory definitely would pop up and i was planning on taking this case either for the next episode or fairly soon because this interests me as well especially the psychology behind it and this is that the serial killer john wayne glover not gacy john wayne glover was the one who killed florence broadhurst so john wayne glover is known as the as the granny killer and as i've said florence is 78 when she died and john wayne glover was convicted of murdering six elderly women on the sydney north shore district between 1989 and 1990 and the police thinks that the six deaths aren't all of it they think that there are still some other deaths that are unsolved and could be linked to him like this one florence broadhurst's but then you think the teacups you know did he go in planning to kill broadhurst and broadhurst gave him teacups and apparently john wayne glover does know florence broadhurst and apparently she had sat next to glover at the wedding of one of her employees and he did know florence broadhurst five years before she was murdered in a wedding as i've said and also he and his wife have went to her factory to purchase curtains so he kind of knows her but then <laughs> I hear about Helen O'Neill, the author, and she said there was some kind of magnetic attraction between John Wayne Glover and Florence Broadhurst. And I'm like, huh. It was not, of course, it was not for sure. It was not official. But there was evidence that Florence is attracted to younger men. And at that time, Glover is 30 years Florence's junior. So Florence is known to date younger men. You know, she goes to a party, she knows this younger man, they click, and she kind of like becomes a sugar mommy. I don't know, but you know, she loves dating the younger ones. John Wayne Glover, though, he never confessed to killing Florence, and the police also couldn't place him near the factory on the day of the crime, so they basically have nothing to go on. The chief inspector, though, of the Glover case firmly believes that Florence was a victim of Glover. Because apparently, one time Glover kind of like admitted it to him, but in a pretty vague way, like, ah, oh, yeah, that one, I kind of did that, you know. But it was not admitted officially. There was no like official confession about this death. So Glover could still be said that he hadn't admitted to the crime. So the chief inspector, even after his retirement, he keeps on visiting Glover, you know, because he doesn't feel that the case was completely finished and he wants to finish it. And at one point, Glover showed him a drawing of this Hydro Majestic Hotel in the Blue Mountains, west of Sydney. It's a sketch drawing. And Glover told him that this sketch here held the answer to some of the unsolved crimes he committed. So when you look at the sketch, in one of the trees, one of them had this number 9 sketched on it. So it's like the inspector went like, huh, he was convicted for 6 crimes and we have 2 unsolved crimes of elderly women that we think is li linked 
to him. And then there's this Florence case that I firmly think is linked to him. So there's nine people in total now. So hey, now that I have the, the sketch, I'm going to go back next week and, you know, ask him about this. Hopefully I could get a confession so we could solve these cases and everybody would have justice. But then, then, huh, John Wayne Glover hung himself in his prison cell. So he died. Uh, so the chief inspector was very, very bitter about this. The answers to his questions are now gone because John Wayne Glover is freaking dead. It should be noted though that the six murders that Glover was convicted were on were all committed in the years 1989 to 1990 and this is a decade later, Florence's murder. It's only speculation. It's not, you know, for sure if Florence is his victim or not or he's just like adding like three more deaths because he just wants to fuck with everybody's brains like ha huh, let me just add more to my death toll even if it's not true because you know there are criminals that does that because they just want to be more to be more infamous you know he i think john wayne glover does know or was actually really planning to kill himself soon and for me it's not far-fetched that he thought that he's going to go out with some mind fuckery so we don't really know so Glover actually has this motive for money because he is a gambler but apparently he would leave his victims in this sexually exposed position which Florence was left in a pretty degrading position but it's not a sexually exposed position so that's kind of like not going with the modus of John Wayne Glover. So the aftermath, oops, so the aftermath of this case is that the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney holds a collection of Florence's work and 34 years after her death, interest in her designs and her life has reached this peak and at this point the wallpaper is kind of like a business that is slowly going down I suppose but then there's this revival in her wallpaper business and fabric business and there was even a movie and as I've said the biography the book about her and this is written by Helen O'Neill she became fascinated by the her story after learning about it and in 2003 she first published her book but then in 2006 she republished it in a new edition when more of uh, Florence Broadhurst's images were discovered. And Helen O'Neill said in an interview, quote, Florence was like no other. She was a brilliant liar, and while researching for the book, it was often hard to distinguish between what was real and what she'd made up. She traveled all over the world as a singer, a vaudeville entertainer, and a French courtier, inventing different lives on different continents, tailoring her name and her history for each one." End quote. So the latest news that I know about her case is from an article in Nine News and this was released on April 13, 2021. So very recently. And this is when the police said that they're going to launch an investigation again in her death. and. Because this is one of the best known unsolved cases in Australia, the, this is the main focus of the police unsolved homicide unit there. I suppose it's, it's in Sydney. It said NSW police unsolved homicide unit. So I suppose it's still open up until now and they're still going and investigating her very unsolved case. and. Honestly, I hope that they, you know, reach a conclusion, but also the missing files, the botched investigation. It's kind of like, I wish they would manage to do it, but at the same time, I don't have much to go on. But I do hope that they find her killer. And yeah, so the case is done. 
And once again, I managed to make an episode that is not so long. Yay! But then when I take up a serial killer episode, it's probably gonna be long again. But hey. Uh-huh. So that's the end of this episode. So hint. Uh, no, not hint. <laughs> I keep forgetting. Not hint. The uh, Filipino word or Tagalog word for this episode is... So somehow, while thinking of a good word to translate, my brain keep keeps thinking of ring. Because for me, I'm still kind of horrified that someone managed to take off her rings and broke so hard that her rings, oh, that her fingers were broken. So I guess I'll translate rings. Ring, I mean. So ring in Tagalog is sing sing. It's sing sing. S-I-N-G, S-I-N-G. <laughs> so, sing sing. So, that's the Tagalog word for this episode. Ring, sing sing. So, yeah, that's about it for this episode. If you have any stories that you want me to cover or you have stories of your own that you want to share, you could email me at macabramblings at gmail.com. And if you do email me a story, please say if you want to remain anonymous or you want your name to be called out, you know. And I also have Instagram and Twitter and you can contact me there as well. It's very much appreciated. So in Instagram, it's Ramblings Podcast, And at Twitter, it's at Macarambles, which is M-A-C-A Rambles. And that's about it. Make sure to eat good food. Don't skip meals. It's very important to take care of your body, so always hydrate. Don't forget to stay hydrated. Hydrated? Hydrated? <laughs> hydrated? Because water is very important. It's very good. It's very good and it's very healthy to stay hydrated. And stand up, stretch, move a little, you know. Stretching is very good. It feels very nice too, but never overextend your body because that's gonna hurt. So, yeah. See you next week, everybody. Stay spooky. And of course, the very most important thing of all. Say it with me. Stay safe, everybody. Bye-bye.